You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to the Collective Cafe, a virtual coffee experience which takes place every single Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in both Alpha Collective's Discord, that's discord.gg forward slash alpha collective and startup clubs house in clubhouse it's free it always will be free there are no strings attached there is no bait and switch lurk or listen only chat with one another in our back chat or even come onto stage the coffee shop is open for business whether you're on the treadmill getting the kids ready for school getting yourself ready for work commuting into the big bad city or maybe just even commuting from your bedroom to your home office on monday we manifest on tuesday we talk thought leadership on wellness wednesday we discuss mental health wellness and life skills on thursday we do live book reads and discussions with the author and then on friday it's no agenda friday where there is no agenda Start your day off on the right foot, on the front foot, with virtual coffee, with the Collective Cafe, where we mastermind, we manifest, we collaborate, we help one another at the business of Web3 or anything else that intersects, whether it's culture, collaboration, creativity, innovation, disruption, entrepreneurship or coaching. So give us a subscribe, bit.ly forward slash Collective Cafe to go, or a review on your favorite podcast platform if you're listening on demand or of course join us every day live it is addictive and remember it is a safe welcoming space and you will never ever be put on the spot this is alpha collectives collective cafe my name is joseph jaffe okay okay so <clears throat> what did we learn today I'm not sure what we learned today um set up a space yesterday promoted it Put a, you know, didn't put too much money against it, but I was trying to see whether I could spread the word a little bit. Uh, I'll tell you exactly if I can find it how much I put against it. Uh, maybe it was fourteen dollars, twenty dollars. Uh, I guess twenty dollars, twenty dollars and ninety-one cents, sixty-nine thousand nine hundred eighty-two impressions, just to see if anyone would show up. Now experiment i i'm gonna say it failed but but then again i started the i started the space the actual advertised space and and then it just glitched and it ended within a minute and then i started a second one and i couldn't come off mute and so i started a third one and so um it's hard to tell whether in fact promoting a space works it's hard to tell whether promoted uh, x's or tweets even work I mean, I am the guy who wrote a book called Life Off to the 30-Second Spot. Not a fan, you know, uh, of advertising per se. Much better to use referral-based. I mean, I wrote a book called 
Uh, flip the funnel. How to use existing customers to gain new ones. Word of mouth referral. Um, that is exactly how businesses grow from the inside out. So, you know, Maddie, maybe you can tell me in the comments or send me a DM. Um, have you been here before? How did you find out about this? Well, I'm glad you're here. Um, Tim is in Discord. He uh, has an allergic reaction to Elon Musk. Uh, so he is not in, in, in X or Twitter or Spaces. Um I have a vision and I will achieve that vision. I will achieve the vision, which is to turn this Monday to Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. slot into, um, you know, we will have we will have hundreds of people in this space, maybe thousands. This will, not may, this will become the number one business, marketing, advertising, innovation, digital culture, entrepreneurship, skills, uh, space or even just audio first radio slot, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. Um, but we will be that Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will uh, start to bring more voices on stage. Uh, we will rotate co-hosts just as they say in the classics, watch the space because, you know, hey, Gregarious, Gregarious Lee, I'm glad you're here as well. Um Everything begins, you know, with, with one voice and one listener and two listeners. And, and uh, you know, I've been just, we've been doing the space now. I've been doing the space, or not in Twitter, but in Clubhouse and Discord since June of 2022. Um, now, I mean, I don't know whether I'm just unbelievably stubborn uh, or stupid um, or tenacious uh, or just determined, uh, but 2024 is going to be the year of growth not just for me, uh, but for everyone that I come into contact with, wherever, wherever I can help, wherever I can assist, mentor, coach, um, we're all going to grow together. Um, if you grow, I'll grow, and, uh, and it's about you first. And so today, um, we're, uh, we're going to continue a live read. It's Thursday. So Monday, we kind of do motivation. We, we call it uh, Motivation or Manifestation Monday, Thought Leadership Tuesday, Wellness Wednesday, Mental Health, but also like Leadership Skills, Thursday Live Book Reads, and then on Friday, uh, it's kind of no agenda. Tomorrow, actually, there isn't a Collective Cafe because I have a coaching session, um, but I'll be back on Monday. So we're going, um, we're, this book is amazing, by the way, uh, Sunil Gupta, which, uh, he's actually um, Sanjay Gupta's brother. And he wrote a book uh, called Backable, The Surprising Truth Behind What Makes People Take a Chance on You. If you have ever raised money or, uh, or uh, looked to raise money, spoken to investors, this book's really good. And, uh, you know, what I've been doing lately is just going to, I've got hundreds of books, maybe thousands of books that I've never read. So I just go and I pick a book off the shelf. And for about a month, we just choose that book. And, and certainly if you have books that you'd like me to read, tell me. Um, we'll read your book. Um, I'll read it with a funny accent. So this is uh, page 94, step six or chapter six. It's called Play Exhibition Matches. When Oren Jacob was an intern at a computer graphics startup called Pixar, Steve Jobs, the CEO, decided the company would change direction from hardware and software to animation and laid off more than half the employees. Everyone was laid off in an instant and Jacob assumed that he was as well. Over the weekend, Jacob was trying to figure out what to do next. That's when his dad asked him, what would happen if you just went back on Mondays if nothing had changed? Jacob figured he had nothing to lose, so he gave it a shot. This, by the way, you know, is very George Costanza 
um, you know, Cosmo Kramer. This is this is actually it's something that happened to Larry David. It's an amazing story uh, of when Larry David was a writer on SNL. Um, um, maybe I'll tell you later if there's time. On Monday morning, he showed up to the weekly all-hands meeting, which had been reduced to fewer than 50 people. The layoffs had happened so swiftly that everyone was scanning the room to figure out who had made it through. Jacob got a couple of blank stares and even a raised eyebrow or two. But no one asked the obvious question, why did they keep the intern? After the meeting, Jacob tried to make himself look busy by seeking out a task, anything to be productive. He did it the next day and the next after that. It was the beginning of what turned into a 20-year career where he climbed from intern to technical director of A Bug's Life to supervising technical director of Finding Nemo and finally chief technology officer for all of Pixar. I just got goosebumps. <laughs> Those two decades put Jacob in the nexus of the backable universe. From Toy Story to Brave, Jacob played a key role in pivoting Pixar from a graphics company to Hollywood's premier animation studio. Along the way, he heard thousands of pitches from every corner of the company, from screenplays to technical proposals to business plans. He personally pitched ideas to Steve Jobs and to Ed Catmull, the co-founder of Pixar. So you can imagine how excited I was to sit down with Jacob to understand what he'd learned about being backable behind the Willy Wonka walls of Pixar. At first, his answer felt disappointing, after 20 years at the studio, Jacob says your likelihood of success inside a pitch room depends on one key thing, practice. Whether you're interviewing for a job, sharing a new idea with your team, or raising money from an investor, a pitch is a live performance. Not practicing beforehand is like an actor not rehearsing before the main show. I felt Jacob was oversimplifying, so I challenged him to walk me through a real-life scenario an interview I had completely blown with Jack Dorsey some years prior. You might remember the story from the introductions, but let me share a few additional, even more embarrassing details. Dorsey, the co-founder of Twitter, had just started his newest company, Square, where I was interviewing for a product management role. In the first two minutes of my interview with Dorsey, he threw me a softball. How do you think about product development? Now, just so you have context... I'd spent the past few years living and breathing product development. I'd managed product development teams, written product development papers, and spoken at product development conferences. But somehow, when Dorsey asked me simply how I think about product development, my answer came out in a jumbled mess. I remember wrapping up my answer like a nervous spelling bee contestant and seeing Dorsey's demeanor fade from full attention to full-on confusion. Shortly after, he politely excused himself. Needless to say, I didn't get the job. Recapping the story, I recoiled inside, but Jacob found it entertaining. After a few laughs, he asked me a simple question. Did you practice before that interview? Yes, I responded. I did my research, wrote down notes and prep questions, all the things we do to prepare for an interview. But did you practice? Jacob asked again. You mean, did I actually rehearse what I was going to say? No. Jacob gave, Jacob gave me a look, not all that different from the one Jack Dorsey had given me. He asked, when you were studying for a test in law school, would you take, a practice, would you take practice tests? I nodded. Without those practice exams, I wouldn't have gotten through law school. Jacob leaned in. So for a law school exam, you would spend hours practicing, but for a meeting that could have changed your career, you didn't practice at all? 
He wasn't trying to make me feel bad, but Jacob's words landed like a punch to the gut. And not just because of the Jack Dorsey meeting, I began to reflect on every meaningful interaction in my career. All the presentations, interviews, coffees, really any situation where I had an opportunity to shine. I couldn't think of a time when I actually practiced before the meeting. Having now coached founders and creators, I've seen firsthand how exceedingly rare it is for someone to practice before their pitch. We'll spend hours researching, outlining, pulling together slides, but very little time practicing what we're going to share. The feeling seems to be that if we have the right content and we know it well enough, then there's no need for practice. But I've found that backable people tend to practice their pitch extensively before walking into the room. They practice with friends, family, and colleagues. They're rehearsing on jogs with running partners in the break room, and during happy hour, they prepare themselves for high-stakes pitches through lots of low-stakes practice sessions, what I now call exhibition matches. Let me repeat that. They prepare themselves for high-stakes pitches through lots of low-stakes practice sessions, what I now call exhibition matches. So I'm just going to... Talk a little bit about this. I love this point. And, you know, just just this week, um, Tuesday night, um, I did mentor review with Founders Institute. And I guess the, uh, I think they had five minutes to do their pitch. Now, five-minute pitch is certainly longer than a one-minute pitch. We generally, the Founders Institute process starts off, you know, with one-minute pitches, then three and then five. And then I think... Maybe the final pitch, if they graduate, I think is 10. Um, And I always say to them, so I'll use the example of five, like how many times can you practice a five-minute pitch in one hour? And the answer, well, you know, do the math. The answer is 12. 12 times in one hour? How can you not be really, really good at a five-minute pitch when you practice it 12 times, back to back to back to back 12 times, in one hour. And can you imagine you spend two hours on it? Three hours, 36 times? Okay, maybe you don't do it 36 times in three hours. Maybe you do it 25 times. Maybe you do it 20 times. And yet, even in a pitch environment, I'll see founders run out of time. I don't know which is worse, by the way, running out of time or actually in a five, in a, in a, in a five-minute um, pitch, kind of finishing after three. By the way, Tim is uh, in, in, in the Discord. He says, you can't do 12. That doesn't leave any room for reflection, introspection, and adjustment. Yes, you can if you choose to, right? Or you could do 10 and then, and then have that 10-minute wiggle room. If you're recording yourself, you absolutely can go 12. And you can practice a one-minute pitch 60 times in an hour. Yeah, like I... Just to be clear, I'm not advocating that you do it 12 times in an hour. I'm saying you could potentially do it 12 times, right? But yes, I think Tim's point, which is an important one, is of course every time you want to reflect, introspect, etc., etc. Listen, you know, as the book says, you can do it in front of your dog if necessary. Um, Your dog's not going to give you much feedback, probably just lick you. Um, but if you've got your, your spouse, your business partner, you know, a kid, whatever, and they're taking down notes, um, yeah, that's going to help. I mean, one of the things, and, and, and I said this, you know, based on 
Um, the session we did earlier in the week, and by the way, if you are new to the Collective Cafe, just go to bit.ly forward slash Collective Cafe to go and you can get the audio uh, version um, of it. But, um, you know, what you want to do, the whole, the whole, by the way, the whole session we did earlier in the week was on feedback. Um, you know, the one advice that was given to the founders is don't immediately make a change you know, to your pitch based on feedback you get, you know, if you're doing the the pitch twice in an hour to two different sets of investors, you need to still triangulate. You need to make sure that the feedback is consistent. So I don't want to go too too far down the the feedback rabbit hole, but suffice it to say, the practice, you know, practice does make perfect or maybe you'll never be perfect. But there's another point that I think is really important here. It's the questions. It's anticipating the questions. And, and look, you may never get to a point in your life where you've fully anticipated every question. But if you actually just do a little bit of role play and, and use a little bit of imagination, you should be able to anticipate some of the questions. What, what basically screwed up Sunil in this example <coughs> is that the question was so like open-ended. Hey, what do you think about product development? Well, what do you mean what I think about it? Um. I have a massive problem for me personally. Um, I hate that that icebreaker question in the networking. People go like, you know, what's keeping you busy these days? You know, what you working on these days? Oh, what, do you, what am I working on? You know, like, does it not say on my badge? <laughs> you know, or like, what's interesting right now? I just, I never have a good answer. I, I even struggle you know, I go into networking now. I'm doing business coaching with, you know, EOS. And um, it may say on my badge, EOS Worldwide or Outpace Enterprise. I go, ooh, what, what does Outpace Enterprises do? And I should have that just, you know, it should literally just just fall off my tongue. And yet, it's just an awkward situation. So perhaps, shame on me for not practicing enough. What's keeping you busy these days? What's interesting these days? What's keeping you busy these days? I should be able to answer that one like nobody's busy. So all of you should be able to answer that question. What's keeping you busy these days? It's a stupid question. It's an awful question. What are you trying to say? Put food on the table? You know, keep my job? Um, <laughs> it's just it's just obscure. Um. Tim is pushing back, by the way. He said, you can't do 12. Uh, oh, it's the same point. <laughs> he said, in my opinion, practicing a pitch or speech by yourself is of limited value. Sure can help you get your points in order, but in my opinion, practice with an audience, even strangers, waiting for the train is a great way to practice your improv skills to communicate your points to an audience that has no idea why they should care about your talk. I, I Look, I think the point is there's no question. First of all, practice period, right? Practice is better than not practicing. So practicing in front of an audience is better than not practicing in front of an audience. Practicing in front of an audience that actually knows what you're talking about and can actually ask you intelligent questions is better than, and so on and so forth. Um, but it is actually the role. There are two points that are, cl- that are important. One is role play is really important. Really, really, really important. Um, and the second is, is um, articulation, you know, with, with not in your head but out your mouth. You must say the words. You must say the words. You must hear your words. 
Uh, you must hear the words you say and people must hear your words because, you know, if you're going to get tongue-tied, if you're going to just kind of like have marbles in your mouth, whatever the case may be, that is when you, that you know, that is when you can actually realize, like for example, and I've said this many times, then I'll move on, I'll go back to the book. If there are seven bullet points on a page, but you're always referencing two of them and never referencing the other five, maybe the other five shouldn't be there. Think about that for a second. Why are you going to those two points? And and oftentimes, actually, just to take it one step further, if there are five points on a page and you go through all five, and every time you know investors are asking about one point, maybe that's the only point that should be on the page. Anyway, let's continue. We'll talk about exhibition matches. This little section is called No Venues Too Small. Years ago, I got a call from my friend Lance, Lance, you know, Hey, it's Lance. I want to know if I can take Nance to the dance. Think there's a chance? I don't know if you know that joke. But anyway, I digress. Years ago, I got a call from my friend Lance, who was both giddy and intoxicated. After some struggle, he was able to coherently explain what had just happened. On a midweek night, Lance and another friend stumbled into the Comedy Cellar, a tiny underground comedy venue in New York City. The place was half empty and Lance was admitted for a mere $5. He sat at a table in the front row and watched performances from comedians he'd never heard of. Close to last call, as he was getting ready to leave, a surprised-looking MC got up on stage. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll never guess who's here. He said, I knew where this is going, he said and gave a slightly longer-than-usual pause. Help me welcome Jerry Seinfeld. This was only months after the series finale of his show, and Jerry Seinfeld was the most in-demand comedian on the planet, easily selling out venues like Madison Square Garden. But there was Lance with a $5 ticket stub buried in his right pocket listening to a comedy legend. When Jerry Seinfeld's show went off the air, he did something that most fans didn't expect. He went back to performing at the tiny clubs that gave him his start 20 years prior. Why? Why? because Seinfeld wanted to practice new material inside low-stakes venues before going back to performing in front of sold-out stadiums. For backable people, no venue is too small for an exhibition match. The only requirement is the ability to practice in front of someone other than yourself. Nice one, Tim Lynch. That one was for you. Simply having a real human staring at you is enough to put you into real practice mode. I've now played plenty of exhibition matches in front of my eight-year-old daughter. The key is to treat each one of these exhibition matches as if you were in front of a real backer. I used to make the mistake of giving a director's commentary during my exhibition matches. I'd say things like, first I'm going to talk about the size of the digital therapeutics market, then I'll discuss how we're different from the competitors. But that's not a real exhibition match. When Seinfeld performed in front of audiences at half-full places like the Comedy Cellar, he still treated it like a sold-out stadium and performed his actual set. Hunter Walk invests in companies at the earliest stage and then works with those founders to help them raise additional funding. While they're practicing together, founders will sometimes try to shift to voiceover mode while they're no longer giving the pitch, but rather give a description of the pitch. If a founder starts saying something like, and this slide is where I'll show the investor our go-to-market strategy, Walk will say, stop, we're going to do this in real time. Oren Jacob from Pixar considers this an essential rule. When you're practicing, don't share an overview of what you're going to share. Share exactly what you're going to share. Not only is that better for your practice, it's better for the audience. 
Jacob told me about the time his colleague, his colleague Andrew Stanton, pitching Finding Nemo to the key marketing partners of the film. These were the merchandising executives who decided how much to invest in creating everything from toys to toddler toilet lids. Because it's such an important presentation, a team of people will typically take the stage armed with lots of visuals, not Stanton. He walked on stage alone without any visuals in hand and for the next 90 minutes delivered what Jacob described as a world-class Olympic caliber pitch. How? By taking the executives right into the story, as if they were watching the film. It wasn't a preview or a description, it was an actual one-man show of Finding Nemo. When it came time to introduce the seagull characters in the film, Stanton didn't say the seagulls are funny because they compete with each other for food, shouting mine at each other. Instead, Stanton tilted his head up like a seagull a seagull, and shouted, mine, 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 to a highly entertained group of advertising executives. Again, they weren't getting a preview of the story. They were getting the actual story. Stanton's one-man performance helped lead to one of the larger merchandising buys of all time. When a friend asks what you're working on, instead of giving them the 30-second summary, ask, do you have 15 minutes for me to practice my pitch? I found that playing exhibition matches not only deepens my practice. Got to turn the page. But deepens my relationships. That's a really good point. I repeat that. I found that playing exhibition matches not only deepens my practice, but deepens my relationships. Friends and family may like to be invited into your creative process. If no, and if no venue is too small, the world becomes your stadium. So I like this point a lot, right? This idea um, that it deepens your relationships, not only practicing your pitch. And, and I'll tell you that, um, you know, what I like about it is, I mean, I even, I even witnessed this witnessed this um thank you uh, by the way um tim just shared um the pixel pitch um so i'm just opening up that i'll i'll see if i can put that into the twitter into the twitter space for you uh matty um or just come back into actually just come back into uh into discord before the end and uh and you'll see it i'll put it in the cafe chat the link thank you um you know even when I talk about like EOS now, um, you know, I've, the big part of EOS is what's called the 90 minute meeting. The, ni- the, 90, minute pe- the 90 minute meeting is surprisingly 90 minutes. And it is, um, it's kind of like part coaching session. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pitch environment, no doubt. Uh, you sit down with, you sit down with the entire leadership team and, you know, you walk them through what is EOS, why EOS, you walk them through the tools, you walk them through the process of what it will be like to work together. And, um, you know, in a real-life environment, obviously you're going to deliver it purely. You're going to deliver that 90-minute pitch. But in terms of practicing that 90-minute pitch, um, you know, I practiced it to my financial advisor um, because they're a connector. Or, you know, I practiced it to my lawyer because they're a connector. But because I know them personally, you know, initially I might have said, and this is the part where I do this. 
But at other times I said, I'm just going to deliver you the whole 90 minute pitch. So I think I've done that. And, and, and I think the message here, um, you know, even, even, um, I believe that I did this for, you know, I'm taking on my wife and her business partner as a pro bono client at the moment, but I did the 90 minute pitch for them. They're pro bono. I could have just said, oh, we're going to start, you know, I'm going to help you with EOS or I'm going to help you figure out how to grow your business. But I did the 90 minute pitch purely for them. In doing that, not only did I get practice, I was practicing on them, but they could actually see, she could see what I do for a living. She could actually see the work in action. And and I think, I mean, she said it to me afterwards, so did a business partner. Wow, that was really impressive. That was so cool. So in a way, you could even argue it deepened the relationship with my wife. Not only because I'm working with her now, but even if it wasn't to work with her, you know, even if it was to work with, you know, I, I to be honest with you, I don't think I've actually practiced it on my kids. I should. Maybe they'll respect me a little bit more, and I'm not saying that in a in a facetious way. Um, it's not to say they don't respect me. It's just to say maybe they'll respect me more. Wow, Dad, that's really amazing. I, I'd heard about this. I'd heard sometimes, you know, for, you know, noise coming from the door. So when you practice, I mean, the way I would use the EOS words here, right, was when you practice, when you're in an exhibition match, you know, do it purely. I do want to say, and I don't know um, where this will go in the, in the chapter, um, but sometimes, you know, if I'm using the analogy of an exhibition match, I think, um, you know, I think that there are some exhibition matches where, like, for example, two tennis players <coughs> will mess around. They'll be miked, um, you know, they'll, they'll be quite comedic. And I wonder what Sunil would say about that. Like, well, I mean, obviously, it's a different context. You take an analogy and you're kind of like, it's a different perspective on it. But that's not really kind of, you know, is that still, that is an exhibition match. It's low stakes, right? There's not a million dollars on the line or ATP points, whatever the, what they call those. Um, but messing around, I mean, I guess probably I'm, I'm thinking through that maybe Sunil will say, yeah, they might kind of, uh, not mess around, but they might kind of goof around a little bit or, you know, but they're still playing tennis. If they weren't, people wouldn't watch. If there weren't good points or competitiveness. So, yeah, I'm just wondering what he would say about that. Let me continue. Be willing to be embarrassed. The first practice session is always the hardest because you're letting someone else see the roughest edges of your pitch. One of the big reasons I never played exhibition matches is because I wanted to avoid any negative feedback. But Reed Hoffman showed me how this line of thinking was holding me back. One of the first projects I worked on as an employee at Mozilla was a, project, a product called Themes, which let you customize the look and feel of your Firefox internet browser. A few months into the project, Hoffman, who was on Mozilla's board, asked me how customers were responding to the product. I answered that we hadn't tested yet with customers because the product wasn't ready. He looked at me and said, if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, then you've launched too late. I repeat that. If you're not embarrassed by the first version of your product, then you've launched too late. 
Backable people have taught me that long-term success can come from short-term embarrassment. I'm repeating that as well. Backable people have taught me that long-term success can come from short-term embarrassment. Compelling presenters who seem to speak naturally and off the cuff often the product of lots of practice rounds. They've practiced so much that their speech seems unpracticed. That is true, by the way. You know, often when I'm when I'm presenting or keynoting, I'll be like, you know, honestly, I don't know what the hell is about to come out of my mouth. I know exactly what's about to come out of my mouth. And sometimes, actually, I don't know what's coming out of my mouth, but 50% of the time I do. Maureen Taylor runs a communication coaching service in Silicon Valley that works with senior leaders inside companies like Disney, General Electric, and Hilton. When I asked her how many of her clients were naturals, she didn't hesitate before saying none of them. Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, is a remarkable example. Schmidt is regarded as one of the most articulate people in Silicon Valley, but earlier in his career at Sun Microsystems, he was viewed as quiet and contemplative, the kind of guy who rarely raised his ideas in a meeting. Taylor told me that Schmidt decided to take action and become a student of communication. He learned how to fully express his ideas during his time at Sun, which led him to larger roles inside the company and eventually put him on the radar of Google's co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Again, it's easy to assume that compelling communicators are naturals, but more often than not, they're the product of deliberate practice and personal reinvention. To get to where they are, they played lots of exhibition matches. Don't ask, what do you think? After explaining an idea to a friend, I'll often ask them to explain it back to me. Not only does that help me understand whether the idea is landing, but it also helps me pick up new ways to explain it. When I first thought about writing this book, the best-selling author Dan Pink listened to my pitch and then explained it back to me, only far more eloquently. The most exceptional people aren't just brilliant, they're backable, he said. If you remember a similar line from the introduction of the book, that was his. Asking people to repeat my idea back to me always gives me a sense of what's actually resonating. It helps me prune away the parts that aren't working and dial up the dialogue that is. This is similar to how the film industry uses table reads, where actors and actresses sit around a table to read a full screenplay screenplay aloud. The director will tune into how the room is reacting to the lines. Those that fall flat might get cut while others get amped up. Hunter Walk, the investor we met a few pages ago, told me he brings the same approach to helping startups raise funding. He and a founder will print out the, uh, print out the pitch deck and put an asterisk on slides that on a scale of 1 to 10 should be dialed up to an 11. The goal of an exhibition match is to get the most direct feedback possible. After giving a practice pitch, don't ask the question, what do you think? It almost never leads to the type of insight you need to get prepared for a difficult backer. Instead, dig beneath surface-level feedback by asking more specific questions. Dr. Tom Lee is the founder of One Medical, which is one of the fastest-growing primary care providers in the world. It's also the company that acquired Rise. Today, One Medical is publicly traded and serves nearly 500,000 patients, but it started as a one-man operation. Early patients were surprised when they walked in to see Lee answering phone calls. 
taking vitals and administering flu shots. During his training, Lee discovered how the right questions could uncover root issues. Lee Lee says that if a patient came in with a headache, for example, he learned to ask not, why did you decide to come in, but rather, why did you decide to come in today? That one additional word helped get to the source of the problem, which Lee says was often tied to the stress of a job or family situation. He began to see questions as medical instruments. Ooh, I like that. He began to see questions as medical instruments. The wrong instruments led to useless answers. When he started One Medical, most medical providers would ask their patients, how satisfied were you with with your visit? But Lee felt that that question was a blunt instrument that didn't probe deep enough. Almost everyone circled four out of five. Lee decided to ask each patient a much more specific question. On a scale of one to ten, how likely would you be to recommend me to a friend? Then he'd dig into why each patient scored the way they did so he could apply what he learned to his next patient's experience. Lee says that question, known by marketers as the net promoter score, was a much more sensitive instrument that allowed him to pick up a lot more defects. By not settling for the standard of stand. By not settling for the standard patient satisfaction question, Lee was able to get past the obvious <clears throat> and design what a business insider reporter called the best medical practice I've ever used and what Fast Company named the number one most innovative company in health. Apple was number two. Lee showed me what's possible when we go beyond softball questions like what do you think? As much as we may enjoy hearing, I like it. This kind of feedback won't get us very far. The most backable people know this. That's why every night after filming The Daily Show, instead of going straight home to his family, Jon Stewart would huddle with the show's producers in a windowless room with a few chairs for a post-mortem. Snacking on his nightly post-show bowl of cut fruit, Stewart would ask what went right but mainly probed into what could we have done better. Steve Badeau the show's head writer and executive producer was in the room for nearly 2,000 postmortems. He recalls how one night they questioned why one of the show's montage reels had received a flat reaction from the audience. By digging beneath the obvious answers, they discovered that writers had submitted the clips without timestamps, which then required the video team to spend 20 extra minutes searching the footage. Sounds like a small thing, says Bedeau, but... Because they didn't have enough time to refine the video editing, the joke wasn't set up properly and that's why it tanked. One final point about gathering the right feedback. Sometimes the best insight comes from how people act, not what they say. A friend may not want to hurt your feelings, so pay attention to non-verbal cues, facial expressions, nodding, smiling at the right moments to tell whether your delivery is landing. When testing new product concepts with customers, Some top researchers skip verbal feedback altogether and pay attention to just the nonverbal behavior. (coughs) When I was at Groupon, my team and I stopped asking beta customers what they thought of a new design and simply watched the way they interacted with it. We got much more accurate feedback that way. Sometimes customers would say they preferred one design but then spend a lot more time interacting with the alternative. Author Neil Strauss told me that when he's done writing a book, he prints it out and reads the entire manuscript aloud to someone he trusts. But he almost never asks for their feedback. 
Instead, <coughs> during his read-through, he'll play close attention to their facial expressions and make little notes to himself in the margins based on their reactions. Strauss considers this practice one of his secrets to success in his Case 7 New York Times bestsellers. Just going to take a pause and have a drink of coffee, see if you have any questions. Please feel free to put that into the show chat on Discord. There's Tim, uh, Chris, Matty in Twitter. I would love to answer your questions. If anyone wants to come onto stage, let's see where we are in the book. Uh, we're page 104. And the chapter goes on to 114. The rest of the sections in the book, I mean the chapter, are build your backable circle, the rule of 21, <coughs> reboot your style. Um, I might just skip to um, the rule of 21, um, just in the interest of time, um, because we're not actually reading the book, we're skipping around a little bit. Um, I do want to comment on the idea of what do you think. Um, I like that. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't love the actual explanation, by the way, in the book, but I think the point I love, um, what do you think is generic? Um, and, and it's a surface question. So I agree with that point. Um, I just, you know, I, I, I think this is less about, um, I also actually like, in fairness, the, the nonverbal cues point is, is powerful as well. Um, how do you do that? Uh, you put someone else in the room. So, you know, if you have, or you record the room, or you have the ability to go back and watch, if you can. Um, you know, Zoom is great. If you, uh, if you record everyone, if you go back and actually look at everyone's reactions, not many, I, probably no one does that, but that's one way to do it in a, in a Zoom environment. Um, I don't know if they still have those ability, but you could certainly, you know, when recording, you can choose to have Zoom, um, you know, uh, show different views, like speaker view, um, the mosaic view, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, but I think I think just asking a generic, a generic question or surface question like, what do you think? Um, what are some of the questions maybe we could ask? What did you like? Uh, what didn't you like? Uh, what could have been done differently? What could have been done better? Um, is anything, was anything confusing? Um, here's one I like, which is, uh, anything surprise you? Um, is there anything there that you hadn't heard before? Is there anything there that you had heard before? Is there anything there that actually um, changed your mind? Right? Is there anything that, that, um, that contradicted contradicted? something that you knew to be true? Um, is there anything there that perhaps um, furthered your knowledge of a subject? So, you know, these are just some questions, like literally I'm making them up <clears throat> as I go along, that I think could help. Um, the questions that come afterwards. And you could argue, of course, <clears throat> that the exhibition match, remember the, the, the first element of the exhibition match is getting practice. You know, that whole point about, uh, about 
you know, those first-time failures or embarrassments. All right, <clears throat> let's read uh, the section. It's uh, two and a half pages, and maybe that will be all we have time for today. It's called The Rule of 21. In February of 1960, Ella Fitzgerald sang Mac the Knife to a large crowd in West Berlin. The, the song was popularized by artists like uh, Bobby Doran, uh, 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 Louis Armstrong, um, and uh, Frank Sinatra. Uh, but this was, this was the first time the crowd had heard a woman sing it. It was a special moment in musical history that was almost ruined when halfway through Fitzgerald forgot the lyrics. But instead of stopping, Fitzgerald kept singing playfully, joyfully, inventing new lyrics as she went. The crowd roared in appreciation and the recording earned her best female vocal performance at the third annual Grammy Awards in 1961. Meanings can easily take a turn like Fitzgerald's performance. You get asked an unexpected question. The connection to your laptop stops working. People shuffle in and out of the room. Some people are natural improvisers and can easily flow through stumbles and interruptions. But more often than not, people who have reached this level of fluidity have built what I refer to as a recovery muscle. Ooh, recovery muscle. Um, uh, if, if I... This episode is going to be called Recovery Muscle. That's a money. Love it. Got to make a note of that. <clears throat> They're so comfortable with their material <clears throat> that they welcome curveball moments. Josh Linkner is... An, uh, <laughs> I just emailed Josh last week. That's so funny. Josh Linkner is an award-winning jazz musician and keynote speaker. Linkner will be the first to tell you that the great uh, musicians and speakers are able to pull off Mac the Knife performances like Fitzgerald's, not from believing that everything will go right, but from being confident, confident enough for everything to go wrong. So I'll repeat that again. Not from believing that everything will go right, but from being confident enough for everything to go wrong. You've got to be confident enough for everything to go wrong. Here's how Linkner described that feeling of confidence in me. When I play jazz, I go into a gig with a lot of confidence, but the confidence isn't what you think. It's not that I'm going to play it perfectly. It's knowing that I'm for sure going to screw something up, but because I've practiced so much, I have confidence that I can recover. Knowing that makes me feel bulletproof on stage. I, too, wanted to feel bulletproof on stage. As I was preparing to give a speech to more than 700 fund managers in California, I asked Linkner how many reps, how many exhibition matches I needed to play. His answer made my face fall. 21 practice rounds, Linkner said. Up to that point, I couldn't remember practicing anything 21 times. And yet, when I later shared the rule of 21 with highly backable people, no one batted an eye. So I got started. I did my first exhibition matches with my wife and kids until they got tired of hearing my speech. Then I went to my friends, calling someone I hadn't spoken to in a while and asking, would you mind if I gave you a practice run of my speech over Zoom? Felt awkward, but very few people declined. And I found myself not only reconnecting with friends, but also inching closer to my target of 21. Around my 10th practice round, I felt something new. I knew the material so well that I no longer needed to focus on it. Instead, I could use that attention span to survey my audience. I could observe how each message was landing and make adjustments along the way. In earlier practice rounds, if someone seemed confused, 
I'd simply move on to the next point. Now, I found myself being able to adjust on the fly. I would slow down and re-emphasize for clarity. If they seemed excited, I'd dial up my energy even more. If they laughed, I'd smile with them. My talk was starting to feel more like a dance than a pitch. Ooh, that's a great one. I'll repeat that. My talk was starting to feel more like a dance than a pitch. Around my 15th exhibition match, I felt unflappable. My three-year-old daughter could kick open the door in the middle of a practice session and drag me to the kitchen to pour a glass of milk, and I could still pick up where I left off without losing any momentum. I began to understand why this Ella Fitzgerald level of mastery matters in the pitch room. Backers will rarely sit quietly through an entire pitch unless they're bored. They cut in with questions, ask you to go back, ask you to jump ahead. None of this is bad because it means your backer is actually engaged. And if you can glide through the choppiness, jumping from point three to point nine and then transitioning smoothly back to point four, those are the moments when your confidence shines through. By the time I was backstage for my speech, I'd practiced 21 times and was almost hoping for a mishap so that I could flex my newly built recovery muscles. I felt I finally understood what it was like to feel bulletproof. I'm just going to read the last half a page. It says, reboot your style. If you play enough exhibition matches, you'll start to see patterns in the feedback. Sometimes you'll come to the realization that your entire pitch isn't working. Instead of throwing away your dream, have the courage to reboot your style and begin again. Nearly every successful person has done this. One proof? Search for an old speech of someone you admire and notice how their communication style has changed. On July 27, 2004, I was working as a junior-level writer at the Democratic National Convention. It was a Tuesday, the second of three nights in Boston, packed with speeches from every household name in the Democratic Party. <clears throat> oh, it was actually, <laughs> I thought it was just half a page. It wasn't, but I'll keep going. Um, my job was to help make each speaker from Hillary Clinton to the Reverend Al Sharpton uh, had what they needed before they went on stage. But in a sea of political heavyweights, it was one speaker I'd never seen before. As he scribbled on a yellow notepad in the corner of our makeshift working room, I quietly asked one of the other backstage managers who he was. The manager couldn't remember his name, just that he was a state senator from Illinois. You knew where this was going. The state senator happened to be Barack Obama, and when he took the stage that night, I got a backstage view of his coming out party. While the world was watching Obama, I felt like I was watching the world. I saw a tidal wave of energy rip through the crowd, electrifying everyone it touched. I saw parents lifting children to their shoulders, hardened politicos wiping back tears, and camera operators sidestepping their tripods to watch with human eyes. Oh, I love that idea. Before that speech, most people in the stadium didn't know Obama's name. Hours after the convention finished for the night, I watched as people stayed behind to scrounge for Obama paraphernalia on the stadium floor. We know how the story unfolded from there, but it's worth taking a moment to revisit how it began. Four years before that speech, Barack Obama ran for Congress and was defeated by a two-to-one margin. After the loss, the Obama family was $60,000 in debt, Michelle wasn't happy, and Barack was considering giving up his political aspirations altogether. And things were about to get worse. After losing his election, Obama decided to fly out for the 2000 Democratic National Convention, which was being held in Los Angeles. After landing at LAX, he tried to rent a car, but his credit card was declined. 
Then after finding a way to the convention, he was denied admission into the main auditorium. When Al Gore accepted his nomination that night, Barack Obama was standing outside the convention watching on a monitor. Four years later, he would be the keynote speaker. What happened in those four years? Obama began again. He hit the reset button and started from scratch. It's hard to believe now, but back then, Barack Obama was seen as boring. Reporters described him as stilted and professional. His stump speech felt like a lecture. Ted McClellan, the journalist who covered Obama during his congressional loss, said that his speeches were so dry they, quote, sucked the life out of the room, close end quote. That all changed when he rebooted his style, thanks in part to a new ally, the Reverend Jesse Jackson. While Obama knew how to educate an audience, the Reverend knew how to move an audience. If he was going to reach the highest levels of office, Obama needed both. So Jackson helped Obama become a frequent speaker for his coalition, the Rainbow Push. It was there that Obama played many exhibition matches, honing a style that would ultimately become the foundation for his 2004 keynote. Looking back on that period, Obama says that it was losing an election that showed him how to win. It taught me the importance of campaigning, not based on a bunch of white papers and policy prescriptions, but telling a story, he said. That wisdom helped rebrand Obama from neighborhood politician to a national leader. But none of that would have happened had he not been willing to to reinvent his own style. And that is the end of the chapter. We only just didn't cover one tiny little section, um, which was about your um, your your inner circle. Um, uh, what book am I reading? It's it's Backable by Sunil Gupta. We've been reading this over the last uh, couple months on Thursdays that I've been here, Bez. Uh, Tim says, in Microsoft 365, using Teams and PowerPoint, there is Speaker Coach, which will let you practice and give you feedback on speed, pacing, and biased words. It can't judge your concept, but if you are not normally speaking to groups, it can help. So kind of using, I guess, AI, and uh, and that's interesting. Um, well, I hope you enjoyed today. Uh, today was an interesting experiment, you know, because uh, I tried to promote <laughs> uh, the the space. Uh, Matty, you still have to tell me how you found me today, um, or were you in the Discord before? Have you been here before? Send me a DM or PM or something, just a little bit of feedback. Please go and tell a friend. Uh, all of you, um, as I said, we're going to build this into, uh, there will be tens and then hundreds and thousands of people. That's the goal. Just, you know, just keep those reps. By the way, oh, by the way, since June 2022, one might say, I've been playing one hell, certainly more than 21 exhibition matches. And I guess my exhibition in a circle consists of people like Tim and Bez and Chris um, who uh, sometimes I'm just playing to an audience of one uh, live, of course. So um, I guess inadvertently, you know, I am the, <laughs> let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Let's see if these exhibition matches pay off. Have an amazing day, everyone. And I will see you all uh, on Monday. Remember, no session tomorrow. Bye, everyone. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.